Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Last week, I told the story of Medusa and the hero Perseus, who was the young man who beheaded her with the help of the goddess Athena and a couple of other deities. And we discovered that when you look into the story of Medusa and you go back to the ancient Greeks, you find that she was born with those snakes on her head. She was one of three sisters called the Gorgons, and they lived on the very edge of the world, really beyond anything that was known, a place where there was no sun or no moon. The more familiar version of her story, the one in which Medusa is a beautiful young virgin priestess in the service of Athena, who's raped by the god Poseidon and then punished by Athena, that comes later. That is Ovid's version of the story. This is significant because Medusa's longevity in our culture is testament, I think, to our ongoing fascination with what this woman, with this figure, might represent. And that's something that we're going to talk about a little bit more today. The various ways that Medusa is mistreated and her ultimate beheading, which happens in either version of the story, are often interpreted as symbols for feminine rage and the abuses of patriarchy. As I said last week, I think those interpretations are completely justified and useful. But they also lead to a question. What next? What is next in the ongoing saga between men and women? between the ideologies of patriarchy and the promise of matriarchy, between the feminine and the masculine faces of the divine and their dance in our collective psyche. And what does Medusa have to offer us as we contemplate that question? So let's think about this today. Medusa is closely connected to the ancient goddess of life and death, the great goddesses, the time when it was the goddess who was the central figure, the figure who encompassed all of the meaningful activities and experiences of life. We know that Medusa is tied to these earlier figures and that she herself is probably much, much, much older than even the Greek myths that involve her, by her iconography. The snakes, the boar tusks, which connect her to pigs, the wings, because the snake and the pig and the bird have long been associated with the great goddess, with deep feminine wisdom, with messages from the other realms with the greatest secret that she carries, that of life feeding on death, death feeding on life, and the ultimate prospect of rebirth. 
really expanding on the iconography here and the significance of these companion animals is really more than we can do in this program today. But I invite you to investigate that a little bit on your own. The pig in particular, I find very interesting. And of course, the snake has been loaded with meaning and connected to the earth, to the primeval, to evil or wisdom, which one is it, and to the feminine. We see all of that in the Christian mythology of Eve and Adam and the serpent and the apple in the Garden of Eden. Now, the goddess, this great goddess, had several different faces and aspects that as time went on were broken out or sort of further refined into separate divinities. One very common formulation is that of the crone, the mother, and the maiden. In this we have the young virgin, the the girl, who still belongs to herself, has yet to become woman to to really embrace her creative capacities. Then we have the mother, the mother who's done that, who is then the nurturing face, and then the crone, which is wisdom, but is also the place where this death connection comes back in. Last week, when we talked about Perseus, I observed that uh, it's easy to hate him, especially because he kills Medusa when she's asleep. But if you look at his story, what you discover is that he conducted this dangerous mission to go and kill the monster, Medusa, in order to save his mother. And then on the way home, he uses the head of Medusa to rescue the beautiful princess Andromeda, who's been chained naked to a rocky cliff. Both of these elements, I think, point to a continuous and supportive relationship with the feminine that occurs alongside his murder of Medusa. But let's play with that observation a little bit, or kind of spin it around and look at the faces of the feminine involved. Arguably, the two that Perseus stays in relationship with, his mother and the beautiful young virgin, are the two faces that Western culture has loved best. I think any woman understands immediately what I'm saying here. Because we're all brought up to be the nice girl. And part of what makes a girl bad or a woman unacceptable is her rejection of motherhood, or her problems adequately, from a social perspective, fulfilling that role. Women aren't supposed to be too strong or too loud or too powerful. If we're uncomfortable or unhappy about something, then we get dismissed as being bitchy or weak. So there's a tremendous amount going on here. And we might be tempted to stop at this point and say, okay, Despite the women, the faces of the feminine in Perseus's story, uh, it's really all just so much blah, blah, blah because of his rejection of Medusa. And I do think that this is very rich territory 
for reflection, especially on the individual level. But we can go a little bit deeper, and I think that we should, because this challenge of the death-dealing feminine is profound. We have a living example of the death-and-life-dealing feminine in the Hindu goddess Kali, who is central to the Hindu mythological philosophical system and has not been repressed. She's been active in their iconography and in that religious thought system for centuries and centuries. If you're not familiar with Kali, Kali, in a nutshell, is the face of the fecundity of nature. She's tremendously abundant. But that abundance is the impersonal abundance of nature. Imagine the multitudes of creatures that populate this world and their inevitable death as they, that is we, feed upon each other and the frenzy of life only to become food ourselves. This is Kali. And it's possible that Kali, like other forms of the great goddesses found around the world, is evidence of an earlier matriarchal or matrilineal society in what we now call India. But when you look at Kali and the Hindu system and Indian society, you see right away that merely creating or resurrecting our version of Kali with the Western face or integrating Kali into our cultural frame of reference is probably not the answer to this problem of patriarchy. The continuous recognition of Kali and the life-death principle that she embodies has not made Hindu society friendly to actual mortal women, not in the least. Given the symbolic and metaphorical language of the psyche, we need these images. I think we need the image of Kali and Medusa and others that we can come up with to converse with and to inspire us to a more integrated consciousness and society. The face of the divine that you have before you is tremendously important. And simply saying that you're not religious or that you don't believe in any of that stuff, you know, just trying to check out and not participate on the conscious level is not enough. Because we are submerged, enfolded, shaped, informed by, use whatever verb you want, by the larger, larger cultural context that we live in. And it takes a great deal of effort to understand this and to shape it. That's part of the point of this program. It's to share mythologies and stories and also to use them, to use them as ways of kind of getting a little distance and perspective, not only on our culture, but also on ourselves, on our own assumptions and belief systems. And in doing that, try to refine them because we're all stuck in ways that we can't even see. Patriarchy is not the only problem for us. It's not the only challenge that's represented in the form of Medusa or Kali and the ancient great goddess. It's the death thing. It's that fear of death that lies underneath 
these images that also poses a great challenge to us. Joseph Campbell said that the central task of a good, that is useful, mythology was reconciling us to the life-death connection. And we know that the early mystery religions and cultic rituals of many civilizations around the globe dealt with exactly this issue. The people who were initiated into these mystery cults were initiated into an understanding of death. We've been struggling with this as a species for a very, very long time. Now, there's another fear wrapped up in here. So you see, this is pretty huge, the Medusa thing, because we've got the feminine and patriarchy and all of that. We've got fear of death. And now I want to add to that list fear of the other, other with a capital O. All that is not what you are. Just as a side note, for the Greeks, woman was the ultimate form of the other. Their society was so organized around a set of male principles, or things that they said were masculine and male principles, that woman was imagined to be something completely and totally different. She was associated with all types of things, including um, insanity. How many of you have heard that out there, ladies? That you must be nuts because you're a woman. So, Let's return specifically to Medusa and her head. Her head was so powerful on its own. And I have come across a number of people who've been writing and thinking about Medusa have suggested that the significance of this head that continued to have its power separate from the body, that lived on, if you will, beyond her mortal frame, that this is the ultimate symbol of ambiguity. That is, the other. The other is all that we're not. The other is that which we don't understand. And it always presents us, therefore, with a paradox. Now, in this context, I found several references to the demon Humbaba, who was decapitated by Gilgamesh. And I find this very interesting. So, I want to share this with you as a little food for thought on this theme of the other, Medusa as the other, and our problem with Medusa being one of our fear of the other. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a Sumerian myth. The Sumerians were a very early literate society in the Middle East, and his story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, probably goes back to at least 2500 BCE. Now, in his story, the hero Gilgamesh and his companion, a warrior named Inkadu, decide that they need to make a name for themselves. They decide they need to accomplish some great feat in order to be recognized as heroes. And Gilgamesh has the idea that they should go to the sacred forest. This is the deep, dark, primeval forest and cut down some of the trees. Within this forest, there's a grove of sacred cedar trees. And Gilgamesh thinks they should go and get some of these trees and, you know, make temple doors, or I don't remember exactly what it was they were going to build. 
And the problem with this is that the woods are are guarded by a giant demon named Humbaba. And Humbaba, we are told, had huge fangs, and he was a giant, a giant, giant. And, and this Humbaba was watchman of the sacred cedar woods. So Inkadu and Gilgamesh go to the woods, and on the way there, they each have a dream, and they take turns being very frightened of Humbaba and the prospect of their meeting with him. But ultimately, they get to the woods and they're urged on by the god Shamash. And he helps them by sending a big storm and a big wind that immobilizes the giant Humbaba. While Gilgamesh and his partner Inkadu cut down seven of the sacred cedar trees and strip them of their branches. Now, as they're cutting these trees, they're moving closer and closer to the threshold of Humbaba's house. And eventually they get there. When they reach him, he says, Gilgamesh, please don't kill me. If you don't kill me, I will be your servant. And then all of these trees will belong to you. And Gilgamesh is quite moved by this. But Enkidu insists that Humbaba must die. He says, it's going to be us or him, ultimately, no matter what he says to you right now. So there you hear that, fear of the other, right? And Gilgamesh can't resist the arguments of his partner, Inkadu. They're very close. And so they kill Humbaba. And when they do so, the forests and the great mountains all shudder. And the great god, the the top dog god, Anli, is very angry and shouts down at them that they shouldn't have done it. But it's too late. Now, Gilgamesh's story continues, and interestingly enough, it's ultimately concerned with life and death and the problem of death and our desire for immortality and our inability to achieve it. So it's occurring to me that that would be a very good story to tell on this program in this context. But in any event, in this, in this story of Gilgamesh, the connection of this ancient other, this ancient other that's decapitated, <laughs> is much easier for us to read, and the loss of something vibrant and glorious and primeval is more palpable, I think, the fact that Humbaba is in a forest and not in some cold, dark cave on the edge of nowhere makes his connection to nature a little bit more immediate. But I think it's accurate to say that Medusa and Humbaba are two faces of something old and natural and instinctive and impersonal. I've used that word impersonal a few times today. And I think that's a big part of our problem with Medusa and with many of the older faces of the sacred or the other, and oftentimes they are the same thing. Our mythologies and many of our images of the sacred in Western culture have been driven by a deep longing for a personal God, 
for a personal savior, for a sense of a personal destiny, and a mythology or a story that reassures us that we're individuals who are looked over and loved as individuals, not merely creatures crawling around on planet Earth. I'm not going to suggest that one is better than the other in this program, but again, I want to focus your attention on the fact that all of these things are themes and choices that reflect collective fears and conversations that have been going on for a long time that many of us are not aware of. The role of our mythologies is to help us to explore the ambiguity and the paradox that is presented to us by the face of the other and the sacred, and to try and reconcile these two faces, the benevolent and the deadly, the life-giving and the nurturing and the fatal, or the petrifying in the case of Medusa. Our artists over the centuries have imagined and reimagined Medusa for us many times, usually not straying very far away from the snakes and the snaky head. There is one very famous statue of Perseus by Cellini that I wish there was a way I could show you while we're on the radio here. You might look for it online. It's really beautiful. And in this, this statue represents this glorious young hero, muscled in the way of all fine Greek statues. And in one hand, he holds his sword, and in the other, he holds up Medusa's head, which, oddly enough, he closely resembles. And this is maybe the final point to make about Medusa about our fear of death, our images of the divine, our images of the other. Ultimately, we are them, and we make them in our own image. We make them in our own image unless we consciously try to engage with what is truly beyond our understanding. The attempts that we've made to tame Medusa have turned her into a victim, largely. A victim who suffers from the same ills and pains and torments that we've designed for each other. But what she represents goes far beyond anything in our purely human realm. Medusa, as the great goddess, as the face of the sacred, as the other, is archetypal. These are all names that we give to a phenomenon, to an experience that is much bigger than we are and exists independently of us. Medusa has a numinous power and her snakes belong to the psychic reality of which we are a part We are living and partaking of a much larger field. We are Medusa, and she is in us. But figures like Medusa are the forms that we give to these numinous archetypal experiences and realities. 
We create these forms so that we can share the experience, so we can talk about it and we can talk with it. But the point here is not to reduce what she is to our scale, but rather to understand that how we perceive her and have portrayed her is a reflection of us, how we share her snakes, where we find them in ourselves, and also our capacity to understand who she is from our human perspective. I want to stop on that note because I've got a few announcements that need to be made today, beginning with the announcement of the next Medusa event. Last week's opening for the Musing on the Medusa Art Show at the Listening Lounge was absolutely incredible, and I'm so grateful to all of the artists who contributed their work and also to the many people who came to our opening reception. The show will be up until April 7th, So I hope that you'll come in and take a look at what our local artists have done with the figure of Medusa. And tonight, there is another Medusa event at the Listening Lounge, sponsored by the High Desert Mythological Roundtable. It's called Medusa, a spoken word event. It's from 7 to 9 p.m. That's tonight at the Listening Lounge. The first half of the program will feature high and low desert artists who will be sharing their work on the theme of Medusa. Then we'll take a little break, and the second half of the program is an open mic. Anybody who has something they want to share on the general theme of Medusa is welcome to do so, as long as you limit your contribution to three minutes. I am planning on recording this event So hopefully I can turn that into a show or two here for Myth and the Mojave so that I can share the words and the poetry with those of you who can't make it to the high desert tonight for that event. Radio Free Joshua Tree and Myth and the Mojave are made possible by generous donations from Mojave Wi-Fi, Joshua Treats Ice Cream, Pappy and Harriet's, Peter Spur Realty, and listeners like you. Please support this unique community-based station by clicking on the Donate button there in the left sidebar on our website. That's www.rfjt.org. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, You can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. I want to invite you to check out my website at www.mythicmojo.com. If you are interested in doing personal myth work, in understanding the mythic patterns that are shaping your life, I can help you do that. At Mythic Mojo, you'll find an extension of the more theoretical conversation that we're dipping into here on this program about the mythological perspective and how to think and live mythologically. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to you for listening. Please tune in next week for some excerpts from Medusa, a spoken word event. And in the meantime, 
Happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.